Hope you guys are doing well. We're continuing our study on the church. And this morning, we're continuing the portion of that study where we're looking at the nine indicators, the nine marks of what a church is, these nine measurements that indicate that this church is legitimate biblically. We're on the fourth of nine marks this morning, and that one is transformation. These nine marks are preaching. Remember, we studied these. Preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, which we looked at last week, this morning. We're going to talk about what the gospel produces, and that's transformation. Next week, we're going to talk about evangelism. Then we're going to talk about church membership. We're going to talk about discipline. We're going to talk about discipleship, and then we're going to talk about biblical leadership. But it's important for us this morning to recognize that transformation is vital. Some people prefer the word conversion. Um, I prefer the word transformed. You're going to find both of them in your Bible, and I've given you some passages here in your notes, and you can go to the blog, MitchJolly.com, and see all of the notes, everything I have in front of me you have available to you and you can go look at those passages you can choose your word I like transformation some like the word conversion yes and yes you pick they're both in the Bible but transformation is absolutely essential as a measurement of a New Testament church the reason that it's so vital and I want you to hear this is that Jesus preaches a message that calls for repentance, a turning away from something and coming after something else. We've learned from the scriptures that mankind is hardwired into sin. We have a massive sin problem. We are conceived with sin flowing through our veins. We're born into this world with sin corrupting our very nature. We live in a sinful world and we learn that Jesus comes preaching a message that requires us to believe, turn from that to something else. Mark 1, 14-15. If you've heard this passage once, you've heard it a thousand times. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Just side note here, repent and believe are like hand and glove. You can't separate those two in the Bible. You repent because you believe. You believe because you've repented. Right? So you can't separate repentance and belief. When you read those in the scriptures, you understand that those two go together. Because Jesus preached this message, this good news of the kingdom of God, his reign and his salvation. And he then said, you need to repent, believe, and come after him. There's something that has to happen between hearing that message and actually putting one's feet in the footsteps of Jesus. Because we're going to read, as you read your Bible, you're going to find everywhere Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, there are two responses. There, there are two responses. This is consistent. And you'll find that here they are. Here are the two responses. People don't repent. They don't believe. They don't turn away. And they lose their intrigue in Jesus. They no longer come after him. 
They hear the message. Jesus tells them who he is, what he came to do. And he tells them to believe. And in one instance, they go away sad because they're very rich. Or in one instance, they simply say, this is a hard teaching. Who can believe it? And they go away. Or there's a miraculous change in which people drop everything. They drop everything. And they come after Jesus. These people are so radically changed that they simply come after Him and they immediately, immediately are willing to turn loose of everything and come after the Master. Because the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field and when you stumble over it and find it, you go and sell everything you have and buy that field because there's nothing more valuable. Example, the woman at the well, John 4, right? This woman who has had five husbands and the woman she now has is not her husband. Oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Son of God, the creator of the universe. And she is so transformed that she leaves the well and goes back to her village and instantly begins making disciples. And the whole village comes out to see who is this cat that has changed this woman's life. The woman at the well. The man full of demons. Scriptures call him the demoniac who Jesus meets and he transforms. He casts the demons out and he is now clothed and in his right mind he has been so changed by Jesus that he wants to get in the boat with Jesus and the twelve and go on with him and Jesus says no 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 you go back to your family and you tell them how much the Lord's done for you and we have archaeological evidence that that happened because the region Jesus healed that man in is called the Decapolis the ten cities and there's archaeological evidence of a robust Christian community in the first century and it's attributed to this guy who we don't even know his name Jesus so changed him that he went home and preached the gospel and made so many disciples that there was a robust Christian community there. Right? How cool. Don't even know his name. He's not like Paul. He's not like some famous M. He's some dude who had demons in him, and Jesus so changed him that he went home and started making disciples. Just by the way, you don't need a class on disciple making. You meet Jesus, you know enough to start telling somebody else how to meet Jesus. That's fact. Fact. Right? The woman at the well did it. The demoniac did it. And then there's Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast the demons out of, and she is so transformed, she just comes after Jesus. These examples are why we can't talk about the gospel of the kingdom without needing to talk about what the gospel does when it effectively falls on a human heart. The gospel is the powerful message that transforms people into new creatures, creatures, creations. Therefore, the gospel this is just a practical point. We don't have a ton of application. I'm going to give you a few points. This is primarily things you need to know, all of it. And, and I trust the Holy Spirit can give you all manner of applications. But here's one just right in the middle. Because the gospel transforms, it is absolutely essential as Christians living in the world that when you have a chance to bring the good news of the kingdom to bear on somebody's life you need to follow that up with an invitation to believe on Jesus and come after him why? because when the gospel falls with effect that invitation is what Jesus gave and we want to imitate his example because that invitation reveals whether or not they've believed 
Because if they have, they will drop everything and come after Jesus. That's what transformation does. That's why Jesus told the parables of the kingdom. It's like the pearl of great price. You find the pearl, you're like, go sell my house and everything and go get that pearl because there's nothing more valuable than the pearl. The treasure hidden in the field, there's nothing more valuable. You simply, when you share the good news of the kingdom, which we told you last week what it was so you know the message that you are to proclaim when you share that good news of the kingdom you offer do do you believe that do do you believe if they believe then good news you've just made a disciple right because transformation is so real we never ever 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 miss the opportunity to see if that person has believed We can't talk about the gospel without talking about the transformation that the good news produces. So I ask you this question, what's transformation? What is it? Well, I've got several points to help us clarify what transformation is. So here we go. Number one, transformation is God's good initiative of grace. Transformation is God's good initiative of grace. Grace often gets used in a Christian subculture as some flimsy thing we show people when they've sinned greatly. And we just ignore it, right? So, so like somebody does something they ought not do and we try to hold them accountable, what happens in Christian subculture is, man, you just need to show me grace, right? Can I just say to you, that is a radical misuse of the word grace. That is not biblically what grace means. In fact, grace might look like, hey, man, you keep doing that, you're going to go to hell. Because that's not what follower of Jesus, that's not what followers of Jesus do. That's gracious, right? But to pretend it has no effect on their lives is not grace. Like, if, if, if we discover that we have cancer, is it gracious to say nothing? No. You go find somebody that can dig that out, right? You, it may hurt, it may be difficult, but dig that out of me, right? Sin is a cancer that kills. It will destroy Sin is not good for us. So this idea that grace equals don't hold me to holiness is false, right? That's not what the Bible means by grace. Transformation is God's good initiative of grace. Grace in the Bible is always prevented or presented as the good and powerful justifying initiative of God towards sinners. And I've given you multiple examples here in the notes. And I can't go over all of them, but I'm going to try to hit them quickly Because each of them is a sermon in and of themselves. So in your small groups and in your private worship time, your private Bible study, please go read these passages. But for example, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 to 20. The Lord promises, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes. Who does it? Do they do it? No. It's God's good initiative of grace. God is the one who comes and says, Dirty heart, I'm going to take it give you a clean one. That's what grace in the Bible means, is God is the one who comes and solves the sin problem. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What revives the soul? The law of the Lord. What's the law of the Lord? It's the good news of the kingdom. It's the gospel that is preached, Genesis to Revelation. What revives the soul? The word of the Lord. What's the good initiative of grace? The word of the Lord reviving the soul. How does the soul get revived? You? No. The word of the Lord bringing it to life. My favorite 
My favorite is Ezekiel 37. It's the chapter in your Bible that talks about the valley of dry bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Did those bones just stand up on their own? No. The Lord said, Ezekiel, go, look, valley of dry bones. Here's what you do. Go prophesy. Preach to the valley. Okay. So Ezekiel goes and he prophesies as I was commanded, verse 7 to 10. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come on them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. How did God raise up a people to himself? Preach the good news of the kingdom over them. And as he preached, he graciously initiated life and brought them to life. This is John 6, 44. This mysterious thing Jesus says that is the culmination of everything that really started back in John chapter 2. Which I want to encourage you, as you're reading your Bible like the Gospels, read John in one sitting. Don't just read a chapter of John and then close your Bible. Read all of John in one sitting. Yes, I know that's a lot of reading, but it's really not that much reading. You need to see the movement of the narrative. Because John 6 is a culmination of what started in John 2. Jesus had just presented a hard teaching and they all left. With the exception of Peter and the others. And he turns to Peter and says, Peter, you want to go too? Where am I going to go? you got the words of life, right? There's a difference, right? There's your two responses. Repent and believe, no, I'm good. Or where else am I going to go? You have life, right? Right there in that moment. And Jesus in verse 44 says, this is why he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why did Jesus say that? Because all the way back in John 2, Jesus turned water into wine. And we learn in that passage, in fact, at the end of it, it says many believed in his name. And we think, oh, they're Christians now. And then the next verse says, but Jesus himself did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. What did he know? He knew John 6 was coming. Because you come to John 6, and Jesus takes this group of 5,000, and he feeds them on some loaves and fishes. He feeds them. They were hungry. They ate. He gets in a boat and goes away. He gets to the other side, and guess who's waiting on him? The crowd that ate. And so Jesus says in John 6, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, wine, bread. John 2, John 6. You see the connection? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And they went away. And Jesus turned to them and said, this is why I've been telling you, unless my good initiative of grace comes, they will all walk away. Where are you going to go, Peter? I ain't going nowhere. You brought me to life. I'm staying right where you are. Transformed, not transformed. Therefore, transformation is God's good initiative of grace to take sinners from a dead state to a live state. Let me throw this little logic, logical gem on you. You ready? If we don't believe that transformation and transformation of the gospel is powerful, and we all do, we say we do, why do we pray for people to believe? You understand what you're asking? When you pray for a sinner to believe, do you understand what you're asking, right? You're asking God to override them. You're asking God to do what they aren't going to do on their own. You're praying for grace. God, would you 
cause them to believe. Like there's no way to pray for a sinner without believing that God's good initiative of grace will come when the gospel is proclaimed. Isn't that beautiful? And there's a lot of freedom and joy in that, that your task is just to preach the gospel and trust that the gospel is able to awaken to life, right? So we pray. We pray, God, would you save? Would you save them? Because they can't save themselves. And then the next logical step is, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to preach the message over them that will save them? And then you do. And then you ask them, which is the great test on whether or not they believe. Isn't that great? That's kind of evangelism. That's kind of the task. We'll talk about that more in depth next week. But what else is transformation? Transformation is God's good initiative of grace through faith that He gives so that we can't ever brag that we believed on our own or earned our salvation. So transformation is God's good initiative of grace through faith that He gives. So we can't brag we did it on our own or earned our salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. What's our state? Dead. Who do we follow? Satan. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What's our state? Object of wrath. This isn't a pretty picture so far, is it? Like the rest of mankind, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we hadn't even got to any of our response yet. I was dead. He made me alive with Christ. How did he do it? By grace, his good initiative to meet me with the gospel and awaken me to life. And raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why did he do it by grace? So that he could show his immeasurable riches of kindness to me. Isn't that awesome? Why did he initiate grace with me? So he could show me how kind he is. Glory. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And lest we be tempted to think, I can conjure up faith on my own, he makes it clear. And this is not your own doing. What's not my own doing? Faith. It is the gift of God. What's God's gift? Faith. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So, transformation is the good initiative of God, and he does it through faith that he grants so that I can never come to God and say, you owe me this because I exercised that. Listen, if I could conjure up faith on my own, God owes me something. Because I did it, therefore he grants it. I yanked the right spiritual chain and he poured out the right gift. That's not how it works. I'm dead. I'm following Satan. And the gospel gets preached and God in his good initiative awakens me to life, grants me the ability to believe so that I can believe and be saved. And it's not a result of work so I can ever boast. In other words, my only response and transformation is worship. Therefore, 
my brothers, according to the mercies of God, right? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, right? Why do I worship? I worship in response to God's grace to me to take me from death to life. He initiated it through the preaching of the gospel. He providentially sent someone to preach this powerful message that took me from death to life, from blindness to sight. And then he gave me faith that I could then exercise. And then I exercised it and he saved me. And my only response is, here's my life. You want to leave? Uh-uh. I ain't got nowhere else to go. You are God and there is no other and I'm sticking with you. Right? That's what transformation does. God initiates. God grants faith so that we can actively believe. This is why you'll read things like Acts 16, 14. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Can I just encourage you to go play with that passage? And I don't mean sit in front of it and read it. I mean go practice it in public. See, just would you pray and ask the Lord, would you open someone's heart to be attentive to the gospel today and give me eyes to see who that might be today? Would you just try that this week? Just try it. Lord, give me eyes to see who needs to hear today and then let me know. Kind of tap me on the shoulder. Do something cool. Speak to my heart, something, let me know. You think he might answer that prayer? I think he would delight to answer that prayer. And then drop the kingdom of God on them. And then invite them to believe and see, just see what he might do. Isn't that fun? What an adventure. You don't look, sound excited. Well, what else is transformation? Transformation is then receiving the promise of all of God's saving so that our full transformation in Christ is as good as done. Therefore, we don't despair, but we hope. I'm sure Grammarly, which is a great app, can help me say that better and less verbose, but I couldn't find a more theologically accurate way to say it. Transformation is the work that helps us to receive all of God's saving so that our transformation in Christ is as good as done. We know it, we understand it, therefore we don't despair in our salvation, but rather we have hope. The gospel so transforms us that it takes us from a place of despair to hope, and it does it by showing us that the completion of our lives is as good as done. You say, where in the world do you see that in the Bible? Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. There's a string of beautiful words here that build the argument that transformation is the receiving of the good promise of God to finish his work in me so that I don't have despair, but rather I hope. And here's the string of words. Foreknew predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Can I be a nerd for a moment? All of these words are constantive aorists. And you're like, I have no clue what that means. Well, I'm going to tell you what it means. That means that they are stated grammatically as already accomplished 
even though they're still being given as promised. For new, Psalm 139, all of my days were written down in his book before there was yet one of them. You can't shorten it. You can't speed it up. It's just a good gift. He knew. He foreknew me. And because he did that, he predestined me. I know that word makes some people uncomfortable, but it's in your Bible, and you've got to wrestle with it. It's there. It's in the manual. And I'm not going to solve that mystery for you. I can't solve it for myself. It's just there, but it tells me that this is a great hope. This isn't something that trips me up or causes me to despair. This is the reason I don't despair, <laughs> is even though I don't feel it, it's presented as a foregone conclusion and reality. Therefore, I don't despair. I have hope. Isn't that great? And because he did that, he called. I mean, think about the providential circumstances of the gospel getting to you, where it got to you in Rome, Georgia, when it didn't used to be here. So that he could, by the powerful gospel, give you grace and faith to believe and call you to life. I mean, I mean, some, some out to break out singing now. This is where... Mr. Closet Charismatic, like myself, would probably be running up an aisle if I were at North Rome Church of God right now. I might go and do it anyway. But then he sanctified me and he glorified me. In other words, he's, or he justified me. He counted me absolutely legally righteous. He sanctified me. He's cleaned me up and counted me as though I'm clean, even though I'm not. So he's still making me clean. And he's glorified me, meaning he's going to finish making me fully human. So I don't despair, I have hope, right? All of these are there to help me see that this is what he's doing in the powerful gospel that transforms. Well, transformation is being made into new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So transformation is the literal recreation of you into the right human. Isn't that beautiful? Transformation is being drafted off the losing team onto the winning team. I love during football season and baseball season, pretty football off season. A lot of trades don't happen during football season, but in baseball, I remember I think it was '93 when the Braves traded for Fred McGriff. We were kind of struggling. You guys remember that? I remember the day the Braves traded for Fred McGriff, thinking that the Lord was probably about to break the sky and return. Because this hitter was going to change our fortunes as a baseball team. And Fred McGriff was not on a good team, but he came to a pennant contending team. Right? He got drafted off a losing team onto a winning team. And that was good for him. And he lit us. Man, we had a great rest. Anybody remember that? There's a few of us in here that are Christians. But we remember that day. He, he left the losing team, came to a winning team. Transformation is being drafted off the losing team and coming to the Braves. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The dark team is going to lose. It is the losing team. The enemy started a war he couldn't finish nor win. And when he transforms us, he drafts us off the losing team. He trades for us. And here he traded Jesus on the cross in my place for my sin to take me from death to life. Transformation is being brought from not seeing and understanding to seeing 
and understanding and having the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. This is why as Christians, you have all you need in the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to know everything you need to know to follow Jesus and make perfect sense of Him in the world you live in. You need nothing else. I'm running out of time, so I need to rush through. I want to end by telling you my story of transformation. I understood when I wrote this out for you. Uh, I didn't write a full-blown version, and I'm not going to share with you a full-blown version because we have little ears in the room. And we have ears that don't need to hear. And frankly, I wrestle with this this week because it's embarrassing. But the Lord couldn't have been clearer to tell it. So I'm going to tell it. I was a chaperone on a youth trip, and I had no business of being a chaperone on a youth trip because I was not transformed by the gospel. And I had evil and ill intention on that trip. Some of you have told this story more explicitly, and those who know it know what I'm talking about. But one evening, in a worship service, the preacher was preaching of all the strange things, not a how-to sermon on how to be a better Christian youth person, but he's preaching on the justifying work of the cross. This was Jekyll Island, Georgia, Super Wow, 1992. Have you ever been to Super Wow, Georgia Baptist Convention? There's a few of us that are Christians too. Praise God. I got saved at Super Wow. And this guy was preaching on the justifying work of the cross. I won't tell you his name. You'd know his name because the point's not the person preaching. And in the middle of that sermon, it wasn't at the end, it wasn't in the invitation, in the middle of this sermon on the justifying work of the cross for sinners, I was literally warmed on my insides. I can't explain it. It was supernatural. My story's not your story, by the way. Don't compare your story to mine. This is my story of God's gracious initiative of reaching me. He reached you the way he reached you. He reached me the way he reached me. So don't look at my story and hear my story and think, oh, God, God didn't do that to me. That's not the point. I want you to hear God, not me. Okay? I was literally warmed on the insides as the message of the gospel of the kingdom was doing something to my soul. And my evil intent and my purposes for being there were instantly shifted and changed in that moment. I heard like I had never heard before. And I was convinced that what I heard was correct. Completely uninvited, God was changing my desires. And I was miraculously transformed before the sermon ever ended. I sat there literally dumbfounded. Because I never, nothing ever, ever, ever had happened to me like that before. I was emotional. I was a pretty cold person to that point. I'm still in cold. God's still working on me. I'm not there yet. I was emotional, but I was new, and I had a whole new set of desires. I sought out a trusted person to tell them what had happened, and I've never been the same since. But the story wasn't done. I was now a Christian, and my transformation was just beginning. And understand God's transformation of us after he saves us is that sanctifying work of him still cleaning us up it's a process and i didn't know it just yet but god was not through with me i was thinking well i'm saved i'm a christian now this is good i'm going to heaven this is all right 
but there was lots more to clean up, and there still is. About the time the Lord saved me, I was tired of the state I was in physically from an accident that I'd had where I tore an ACL, MCL, PCL, and broke some bones in my knee and caused some significant tissue damage. And I still wanted to compete in some things. I like to compete. So I started taking up triathlons. The Iron Man intrigued me because I remembered watching Julie Moss drag herself across the finish line in 1982 at the Iron Man in Hawaii. Anybody alive remember seeing that? Anybody intrigued by the Iron Man? Okay, just me. Very good. She literally dragged herself across the finish line after this incredible event. And I thought, man, since I'm not competing like I was anymore, maybe I could get after this grown man, grown woman sport and have some fun with it. As I progressed, I discovered that my knee was a serious limitation and that diet and work capacity were new challenges that hampered me and prevented me from becoming militarily what I thought I wanted to be at the time and being an athlete that I thought I wanted to be at the time. In the sports world, there's a dark side that most never see and hear about. If you look for it, you can find it. I found it with a few questions. I found a person who knew somebody who could hook me up with some supplements to help me in my training. I wasn't a professional athlete, so I thought, why not? I'm not going to be tested. Nobody's going to find out. It was not supplements like I knew supplements to be. It was something different. It was more natural. So I began using those things, and my training took off. I was a monster in the water, running and biking. If you've seen my wedding photos, you can see what a monster I was. Jennifer knows. I had a sense of desire, however, to lead in the local church at the same time. And I was studying my Bible, and I was an intern at my church, and I met this young lady named Jennifer. We started dating. Mr. Phil and Miss Lois observed all of that. Mr. Larry and Miss Mary downstairs observed that. And things were really good. Winter turned into spring, and my training was going good. But there were a couple of providential events that God lined up by His grace to continue my transformation in Christ. I was mountain biking one day on Lavender Mountain. After completing a long swim and run earlier in the day, I was mixing things up, doing them out of order to, to just get muscles used to operating, kind of shocking them into a new place. It was getting dark, and I happened upon this guy trying to get his girlfriend out of the tower in the middle of the Berry Reservoir. If you've been to the Berry Reservoir, you know where I'm talking about. She had nearly drowned earlier, and managed to get to that tower somehow and would not leave it. And it was nearly dark and she had been there since 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Very long story short, and probably foolishly, I swam out, introduced myself, got her comfortable in the water because I'm a good swimmer. And I began rescue swimming her to the bank. In the middle of that, she rolls over and grabs my legs and starts to take both of us down. I was able to get control of the situation. I won't share with you that story because that's also not pleasant either. And I was able to get she and myself to the bank. That event did a number on my psyche when it came to water. And it still is present today. When I can't see the bottom, or I'm in deep water, swimming in that kind of water became almost impossible. So it did a number on my mental ability to be in that kind of water and compete in open natural bodies of water. 
So I kept taking my supplements and running and biking and swimming in a pool, but I needed to be able to be not in a pool if you're going to compete. So what's the point if you're just swimming in a pool, right? Can't do the Ironman in a pool. Pretty much from the time I started using these supplements, the Holy Spirit was all over me, and I knew it. I was His. I had ears to hear, but I'd ignore Him. And I'd push it away, push him away, and I would push on into my regimen. But the Holy Spirit never stopped goading me. It's almost like the Lord's words to Saul in Acts, Why do you kick against the goads? And that was my daily reality. I tried to kick him off and push him off, but he was not kickable offable. After this near drowning, I knew God was getting my attention to force me to a place to stop. He brought that near drowning about to draw my attention clearly to His voice I'd been ignoring for so long. One day, not long after that, on a run out on Snow Loop at Barry, I began to feel like I was having what felt like a stroke. I felt my right side begin to draw and pull down. And I knew the source and I knew the reason. It started to be like I was being pulled down to the ground. So I laid down in the middle of that trail and I couldn't move. All I could do was speak. And I thought I was going to die right there on the spot. And in that moment of desperation, I called to the Lord. And I'm careful with vows. I've only made one vow in my life and this was it. My marriage vow, but that's much more special. This is messed up stuff I made one vow made a deal with the Lord that if you'd get me off this mountain I'd stop using that stuff he did it he did it he rescued me and I've never gone back I've kept my vow and I have no desire to ever break it God refused to let me go the way of wrong. <laughs> and he brought me to holiness. Because those he justifies, he sanctifies. And those he sanctifies, he glorifies. My personal story of transformation has been a lifelong journey of God intervening by grace. These two big supernatural ways are kind of cool but there are hundreds of small supernatural and micro-providential ways that mark my transformation by the gospel into a follower of Jesus and my growth in holiness. Why? Because God is gracious to take the transforming gospel and transforms sinners into new creatures and keeps working on us to fully transform us into fully restored humans who will one day perfectly put on display the image of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this to you. If you believe the gospel, the evidence is your transformation. If you preach the gospel, make sure you follow it up with an invitation to reveal if transformation has happened so that you can walk that person in understanding what Jesus just did for them. And then finally, if you're struggling today, you need to understand something. The struggle is part of the growth. Being like Jesus isn't just being resurrected. It's walking through the hard things and seeing that He's enough. Which is why 
my favorite worship song of all time. It's something I learned as a kid. And little did I know, learning this as a kid, God would bring it full circle one day. I sing this out loud in the mornings when it's dark and I'm out praying and walking the dog. And so it's just... It's just me and the Lord. I think my dog knows it. <laughs> he looks at me funny when I sing it. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars, how loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. And if you're in Christ, he's still working on you. So don't give up. But make sure you preach that message that took you from death to life to somebody who needs to hear it. Because the gospel will transform. Let's pray and then let's worship him together. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you will help us. Uh, help us now to believe that the gospel is tr transformative, that it does do a supernatural work of grace. Help us to believe that. Lord, I ask that you would take this gospel message that has come through the Lord's Supper and through your word as we have opened it up on the justifying work of the cross and that, Lord, you would do a transformative work in ears who perhaps heard it this morning in a, in a way that you've providentially designed that it happened today. Like for Lydia, that you open their heart to hear. And I pray, God, that you would bring to completion the transforming work that you have designed for that person today or those persons today. I pray for your people to have courage to ask the question, what has Jesus done? Do you want to believe? Lord, put that burning question in the mouths of your people today. Then, Lord, I pray for us who may be struggling, having hard days, or maybe in the middle of good days, to recognize we didn't earn that good day, but it was a gift of grace. And if we're struggling, that you've purchased a lot of good days in front of us too, and to keep on. Because what you have started, you will bring to completion. You will finish it. So, Lord, all these things, we pray you bring hope to your people, marching orders with the good news of the kingdom, and you'd bring great glory to your name. So help us to celebrate all that now as we sing and do it by faith.